Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. For more information about our church, visit EdenWorshipCenter.co. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Join us now as we study through the gospel of Mark, the first of the New Testament gospels to be written. Our prayer is that as you follow along in your Bible, the gospel will come alive in your heart and you will see Jesus more clearly. Chapter 6. While you're turning there, I I saw the story. We're going to be reading 53 through 56 this morning. I saw the story by Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite preachers, uh, from a book of his called Growing Deep in the Christian Life, where he told the story of several years ago in Long Beach, California, there was a guy who went into just a fried chicken fast food restaurant, uh, orders a couple chicken dinners to go, uh, gets them for him and his, his lady that was with him, uh, except the, the lady behind the counter, when she gave him the bag inadvertently, and I think this is a true story, gave him all of the proceeds from the day, which they had put in one of their bags to take to the bank. Uh, so instead of getting chicken, they actually hand him one chicken dinner and $800 in cash that the store had made. So they go on this little picnic, they go on this little hillside and they get there and they sit down when they open it up, here's a bag full of money. So because this guy is kind of extraordinary, they go back to the chicken place, who by the way are frantic at this point, And he goes up to the counter uh, to the manager and says, hey, uh, we ordered chicken and we got a bag full of money. Uh, we're not here to do anything wrong. We're just here to return it. Well, the manager, who, by the way, was outside of his mind at this point, is just, he can't believe it. He's beside himself. He says, hey, this is great. You are literally the most honest man alive today. Uh, stay right here. We're, we're going to call the newspaper. Uh, we're going to call a television station. We're going to have him come down, do an interview with you, get your picture in the paper. Uh, you guys are fantastic. And the guy quickly goes, no, 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 please don't do that. Please don't do that. And then he leans in kind of close and says, uh, you see this woman I'm with, it, it's not my wife. It's somebody else's wife. It is entirely possible to do the right thing and have the wrong motivation. Do the right thing and not have that be a complete representation of who we are. We're going to see it in the crowds today as they come to Jesus. They're coming. They're doing the right thing, pressing in towards Jesus. And yet for many of them probably had the wrong motivation. We actually read last week, the very last verse before we get to this. If you look in your Bible, verse 52 in Mark 6 actually tells us that Jesus says to the disciples, you've completely missed the whole point. The whole point of the feeding the 5,000, the whole point of the storm on the water that I've calmed, walking on the water, getting in the boat with you, you've missed it because your hearts were hard. Now, a little bit of context before we read this. If you remember all the way back, halfway through this chapter in Mark 6, the whole reason they were going was for rest. They were going to get away. And what do they do? They run into crowds of thousands waiting for them. Right? Their, their little family getaway is greeted by thousands of people that they end up having to serve some weird uh, fish and chips fast food dinner to. Uh, they get on a boat to get away from them, and now Jesus puts them smack dab in the middle of a windstorm, which, by the way, windstorms on uh, the Sea of Galilee, they had one in 2012 that was so bad. They get hurricane-force winds that come through there. Uh, it had 30-foot waves on the Sea of Galilee. 
We're talking a big deal because I'm picturing Shipshawana Lake. We should be picturing more like Lake Michigan, right? You can, you can die in, in this place. And so for all night, they're rowing and rowing and rowing, trying to get away, trying to get, oh, finally, we're going to relax. And they get to the shore and who meets them again, but the crowds. Let's stand together and read this. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 53, through the end of the chapter. It says, When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages and cities or in the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your scripture has been preserved by faithful men and women through the generations, guided by your Holy Spirit, that we could have a pure, undiluted direct voice from the living God. We pray that your word would come alive in our hearts this morning. God, I I pray that you would cause us, even as, as you've done already, cause us to look to Jesus. Cause us to be the ones who run to him. Lord, with the big things, with the small things, God, cause us to lift our eyes off of this world and onto the King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Anybody ever worked third shift before? Maybe some of you are working third shift right now. It messes you up, right? If you don't think so, just ask your wife. She'll say, yeah, ask your family. Uh, Anybody ever stayed up for like all night into a couple days, maybe even two days, three days? The the problem isn't that you can't physically keep going. You, You just sort of have this constant buzz in your head and your heart, and every physical thing that you do leaves you emotionally drained, right? Isn't this how it works? This is what parents try to tell teenagers all the time. Seriously, you should go to bed because you're a nightmare in the morning when you don't. Okay, good. Yeah, no, it's true. Okay. I love the fact that Mark gives us these details that if we don't miss them, actually tells us right where the disciples were. They've been They've been disappointed where they were going. Now, feeding of the 5,000 is kind of an awesome thing unless it's your responsibility and you don't have any power to do it. Jesus does this amazing miracle and comes through, but then he says, get in the boat, and they row eight or nine hours, basically all night long, and at morning, they arrive at this seashore. And in fact, if you look at verse 45, this is kind of interesting. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 45. This is before this. He says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So they're going to the other side of this giant lake to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So their, their goal, their place they were heading to was Bethsaida, except we read this morning that they landed in Gennesaret. That's a problem. They, they rode all night and still didn't end up in the right place. Let this sink in for just a second. Jesus puts them on the water in the midst of a gigantic windstorm that makes them work really, really hard and get completely no sleep. And then he miraculously walks on the water, calms the storm, gets in the boat, and the wind had still blown them off course. 
Jesus could have changed the course of this boat. Kind of like with Philip, when Philip is, is baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch and he came up out of the water and, and the Holy Spirit took him someplace else. Jesus could have gotten in the boat. In fact, it happens another time. Jesus gets in the boat and immediately they're at the shore. It doesn't happen. These guys have had sort of the string of disappointments. Now they are exhausted physically and emotionally and they're in the wrong place. But hold on, there's some good news because Gennesaret was not only the wrong place, it was an awesome place. Gennesaret... Uh, has been described as a fertile plain in the south of Capernaum. Uh, in fact, Josephus, who was an ancient Jewish historian, says its natural beauty and fertility were most remarkable. The plain produced walnuts, palms, figs, olives, grapes. It, it was sort of this spa in their time. Had these natural springs where people would go for healing. So if you were sick, it was this lush place, and, and they would send sort of sick people there, and it, it was a recovery place, except... If you remember, before penicillin came along just in this last century, if you had some horrible disease, we didn't have a whole lot for you except for comfort. We're going to try and put you in a decent place, uh, give you some things that make you feel more comfortable, and yet there was no way to fix so many things that now you just go to the doctor and you take some pills for about two weeks and you're better. Guys, we live in a really blessed time. But that means in this region, not only was it a beautiful place, but it was filled with people who were desperate. And now the disciples arrived, and they also are feeling kind of desperate. Feeling like their emotions, anybody ever felt like this? Your emotions are just out of whack. And as much as you try and hold it together, I know there have been times where, I don't know, you didn't get much sleep the night before, or something like always happens right before you show up to church. Right? Families, that's how this, like some huge family meltdown. And then you feel like you got to walk in the front door and put that big plastic smile on so nobody knows what's really going on. And you feel like it's just so out of control, I can't keep it together. Max Lucado said, for the Christian despair, that feeling of hopelessness is a sin because it undermines the sovereignty of God. Christian, let that sink in. For the Christian, for those who have put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus, not only our healer and savior, but the sovereign God of all of the world, for us. I'm not talking about a moment where we feel despair. I'm talking about a moment where we choose despair. I'm, I'm hopeless and I like it here. I want to stay here and just feel bad for myself. It's actually a sin because we are intentionally saying, God, I don't think you are sovereign over this. We are undermining the sovereignty of God. So the disciples are blown off course, and yet they're not at all off course. In fact, uh, the rabbis at, at their time referred to this area as the Garden of God. They land in this incredibly beautiful place called Gennesaret. The people hear that Jesus is there. Look back at verse 44, or 54, I'm sorry. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick. It's not just the people who happen to be there, right? Big crowds sort of run into Jesus from time to time. They're like running around getting more people. This was the original social media, right? They're they're going and getting everybody through the whole region, began to bring the sick people in their beds wherever they heard he was. Wherever he came in villages and cities and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him 
catch this, that the sick people might touch even just the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I was struck by just sort of that that little turn of phrase in there, wherever he went. In the city, in the villages, in the countryside, they brought the sick to him. But isn't it amazing how God kind of works things together? Uh, It was funny, when, when we started talking about praying for uh, the Weimers this morning, it didn't occur to me that we're doing exactly what they did in the scriptures until we started praying. I'm like, hey, look, this is exactly what we're doing. That those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, the most natural thing for us to do when we're struggling is grab the people that we love and drag them to Jesus. That, That should be our first inclination And that's what these people did on on beds. People who couldn't get there themselves. They couldn't even walk there. They've been actually brought to this beautiful place to die. There's a hopelessness, a despair that led them to do outrageous things. Not just drag them to church. Like drag them to the, I hear Jesus is in the marketplace. Let's take uh, sick aunt so-and-so and drag her on her sick deathbed into the marketplace. But notice very carefully that last Sentence and as many as who touched it, even even just the fringe of Jesus' robe, were healed. They begged him that they could reach out and touch him. It should remind us of Luke chapter eight, of the woman stuck in the middle of the crowd who's who's separated. She shouldn't even be there because she is unclean. She shouldn't be making all the other people around her unclean because she's had some sort of feminine problem and has an issue of blood that has gone on for over a decade. And her idea is, I'm just going to sneak up behind Jesus because there is something so different about him. There's something so powerful about him. If I can just touch the hem of his robe, I'll be healed. We see this not just here, it's other times in the New Testament where God works in amazing, miraculous ways. In uh, Peter's instance in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 5, you can just jot it down if you're taking notes. Acts 5, verses 14 through 16 said, Again, the sick were laid out in the streets in their beds and their couches. That Jesus passes this authority on to his disciples and he sends them out, go and heal the sick and cast out demons. And it continues even in the book of Acts And as Peter comes through the city, they see him, and again it says, and they were all healed. Paul, in the town of Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, again, if you're taking notes, verses 11 through 12, says that God worked amazing miracles, unusual miracles at the hand of Paul. Even a handkerchief that Paul had had was taken and laid on the body of a sick person, and they were healed. Now, you know what we do with things like that? We make patterns out of it. Isn't that right? Okay, well, here's what it says in the Bible. So let's start dragging all of our sick people and line them up so that this, you know, man of God can come and do amazing things. Let's, let's start selling handkerchiefs like they did in the 1980s, right? That Pastor so-and-so has prayed for. Uh, while we were gone, I was flipping through the television channel. We were in Chicago uh, watching McKay play volleyball this weekend, and uh, I was flipping through and came across a Christian channel, which I desperately try and avoid, if at all possible, because usually what I run into is this, where somebody was preaching and showing and praying for people, and at the bottom it said, call this number to get your, it was like some uh, holy blessed healing water that you could get. 
uh, and for a, a certain donation. We, we make patterns out of this stuff. We say, this, is, this must be how you do it. And I say, that's not the point of why these stories are in here. We miss it. If we don't think through some of the biblical interpretation intricacies, we're, we're going to come away thinking, well, we're told this story for that reason. So I, I think it is actually important for us to think about that. Uh, it's actually ironic that we're talking about this this morning because today, uh, Mother Teresa is being canonized as a saint. And uh, just let, part, of, part of canonization means you have to have two miracles. Now, I'm not saying these things didn't happen, okay? Uh, Mother Teresa did some awesome stuff. Go ahead and nod your heads. Yeah, yeah. Uh, serving the poor in Jesus' name is awesome. Uh, and yet the, the miracles attributed to her were that a, a miraculous medal is what they call it, a, a cross that had been touched to Mother Teresa's dead body was taken and put on a, a woman who had a uh, stomach tumor and the tumor went away. It sounds, sounds a little bit like us trying to continue that, that pattern. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying when we hear those things, our, our first thought shouldn't be, and it isn't, in all the rest of our life, oh, I bet that's true. Right? <laughs> Any other arena of life, we're like, mm, I, let, let's dig a little deeper. Here's why I think that's a good inclination, because we're actually told this story for a reason. We're told the other stories in the New Testament for a reason. It's not that we go, this is how you do things. In fact, let's just look to the word of God for that reason. John chapter 5, verse 36 says this. He performed uh, the very works that I'm doing. Jesus said, testify that the Father has sent me. Why is Jesus doing these things? Because the works he's doing is testifying that the Father sent him. That's number one. Number two is that people saw those and they made the connection. They understood these miraculous things. By the way, this is why God still does things today. I mean, think about it. God could, if he wanted to, heal everybody. And yet when we see these little, these little glimmers of heaven, these little glimmers of the kingdom of God breaking through our sin-stained world, we are reminded that God is sovereign even over the most difficult things on this planet. There's something in our hearts that should recognize that. Just like John chapter 3, verse 2, where they said, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is in him, with him. Find the same thing in John chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. Here's what we see through Scripture. Jesus said, I'm doing these things to testify about who I am. Not because these are the most important things, but because these signs actually testify to who I am. I think there's kind of a, an interesting side note in thinking about this. Most of the people who received these signs, most of the people who experienced them and saw them with their own eyes, for the most part, had an incomplete vision of who Jesus really was. They saw part of it, which I think gives me a little bit of hope for us today, that we see kind of part of who he is. And then about 10 years goes by and we discover something, something more, something deeper from the word of God, something more grounded maybe than what we had in the past. And our, our, our tendency in the moment is to be blown off course and go, oh my goodness, man, I can't believe I ever believed that. I can't believe I ever said that. I think what we should do is glory in the fact that God is revealing himself through the scriptures deeper and deeper to us. 
rather than going back and looking backwards. This crowd, it doesn't even tell us their motivation. They're sick. They're desperate people. And their understanding of the Messiah was not only sorely lacking, but it was very self-serving. They came to Jesus to get something out of him, the end. And once they got it, they actually said, we want more. Remember the last story? Jesus had to leave the feeding of the 5,000 because this rumor starts to break out about what has happened. They said, let's make him king. Which is amazing that we're going to make God do something. Just, just a little bit of irony there. But let's make him. We, he's done one thing. We want him to do everything for us. Here's what the people did not see. They did not see him as the suffering, saving Messiah. They saw him as the king, the ruling Messiah. They didn't see him as the suffering, saving Messiah who would take the guilt of their sin and nail it to a cross. In fact, what they saw and what they were looking for and what so often we today look for, which is why I caution you against these things, is spiritual superstars. That is not the point of the apostles, and it's not the point of why we have this story of Jesus. We were talking this week, preparing uh, for this Sunday, and I, in our pastor's meeting, I said, I, I have been so struck again and again and again, reading through, teaching through Mark like this, that the crowds and the response was not the goal. In fact, Mark keeps painting this picture that the crowds were actually a problem. They kept getting in the way. And yet we also see sort of superimposed up against that, this compassion of Jesus that cares. That his heart is moved with compassion. It's filled with empathy and that he cares about these people who are struggling. And we have to talk, think about that. We have to talk about that because mostly what we do is we just look for super, superstars in the faith. Just some spiritual person who, who has uh, more anointing than we do, has, has more experience or more following than we do, and we're, we're looking to them to be the answer to our life's suffering. One of my favorite people who has suffered well in the public eye is a young lady named Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, those of you who grew up in the 80s probably went to a church on a Sunday night and watched her movie, Johnny, uh, like I did, uh, in some fellowship hall. I heard the story of a young teenage girl who is diving with her family uh, a day at the lake and dives in as a teenager and breaks her neck. And for the last 49 years, Johnny has been a quadriplegic. So she's been stuck in a wheelchair uh, she has these phantom pains in her legs that she can't use anyways, which really stinks, right? If you can't use it, you shouldn't have pain in it. Uh, she can barely move her arm. She doesn't have good control over it. Soon after she gets out of the hospital, she's in the same place where these people are in Gennesaret, a, a place of desperation. I will literally take anything if it will fix this problem. And her sister takes her to a rather famed uh, evangelist, faith healer at the time named Catherine Kuhlman. Uh, she was known for sort of these spectacular uh, religious performances and, and faith healing and people getting healed and uh, all this amazing stuff. And so uh, her sister takes Johnny and when they get to this giant arena, uh, they're taken to the wheelchair section, which is sort of way off to the side and kind of, kind of hidden in the shadows dark room, spotlight, you know, lighting up Catherine Kuhlman, lighting up the people in the front. And uh, Johnny says she sat there during the whole thing 
wondering when she was ever going to come to this section because this section clearly needs it. Right? These, are the, these are the desperate people. She said as the service goes on, she can see the spotlight and sort of hear the commotion of, of people excited and, and it sounded like people getting healed over there waiting for her time to come. And then before the service ends, uh, all the people who worked for Catherine Coleman Ministries came and got all the people in wheelchairs before it ends and takes them out a side door so that they wouldn't get caught in the traffic of uh, everybody leaving, thousands of people leaving this arena. And she said she found herself sitting number 15 in a line of 35 disabled people in wheelchairs waiting for an elevator. Nobody ever come talk to her. Nobody ever come prayed for her. She'd come to this place looking for this answer to her problem, this healing. She said she sat there saying, who is this God who would deny me what I clearly need the most? In her testimony of this, she says a bitter spirit started to take hold of her. In the days and weeks and months to come, she said, if I can't be healed, I just want to sit in a dark room all alone. I don't want anybody to talk with me. I don't want anybody coming in. I just want to die alone. Except she had family who really loved her. And so day after day, in her despair, they would wheel her out because she didn't have a choice. (laughs) Wheel her out into the living room, put a Bible in front of her, put a mouth stick in her mouth so that she could turn the pages. And she would spend day after day after day reading through the Word of God. She often... Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll put the link up to it. That she uh, gave this testimony at John MacArthur's conference here a couple years ago. She talked about how uh, people would come and pray for her, and she'd say, uh, pray that God would do the miracle like he did when uh, the paralyzed person was at, at the waters, and the angel would stir up the waters, and, and Jesus comes and raises him up. They, they'd pray until she says she came across Mark chapter 1, verse 38, where Jesus heals so many casts out demons, and and these people are flocking to him. And Jesus goes off by himself, and when the disciples come looking for him, he says, let's go to the next town. Let's leave behind all of these people who are knocking on the door because I didn't just come to heal. I actually came to preach. That is why I've come out, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. She said it was all of a sudden then that it occurred to her that God's main goal for her life was not healing, but the gospel. And that God would use even the most painful, dark, suffering times of our life to communicate the gospel. At that conference, she said the same Jesus that healed blind eyes and withered hands said to gouge out that eye and cut off that hand if it causes you to sin. She went on to say, are you wondering why God hasn't removed the disappointment and given you healing that you've asked for? God may remove your suffering, but if not, he will use it to destroy sin. This is the deepest healing, and you don't even have to break your neck to receive it. Even today, well-meaning Christians will come up to her, uh, offer to pray for her, you know, can I, can I pray that God would heal you? And, and of course, she never says no. Yeah, yeah, please pray. But she, she kind of redirects them a little bit to what she sees as actually the deeper things that she believes God is working in her. Right, she's had 49 years to figure out God probably isn't all that interested in me coming up out of this wheelchair. 
So she says, that would be wonderful. Will you please pray for my bad attitude? Will you pray for my grumbling? I, I get depressed and I get disillusioned so easily. Will you pray that I will have faith in a sovereign God? She means to show them she's more, far more concerned with the indwelling remaining sin than chronic pain in legs that don't work anymore. Guys, we should be concerned about the same thing. We have sin in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives that is kind of buried beneath the surface in attitudes and actions that is literally killing you. And yet all we think about is is the physical things around us. I'm telling you right now, God will bring adversity in your life to reveal wickedness in your heart because he wants to kill your sin. Because he loves you. Sometimes we look at this suffering and we go, God, if you really loved me, you would not put me through this. God says, exactly because I love you that I put you through this. I, I love in this passage that there's no mention of where these people are coming from. Were, were they selfish? We don't know. Did they understand who Jesus was? We don't know. Here's what they wanted. God, I, I'm hurting and I want you to fix it. Mark doesn't mention it. Jesus doesn't mention it. I would have. Right? Because I'm a, a jerk, I guess. I, I was reading this thinking, Jesus, how can you not say something to them about this? Man, guys, you're missing it. You, you're missing the whole point of this. And yet, look what Jesus does. They bring these people to him and everybody gets healed. Here's why I think that's why I'm wrong and this is an awesome thing. Because what, what better could you do for someone that you love who is suffering than drag them to Jesus? What better could you do than bring, not to some spiritual superstar someplace, to Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, who holds the whole world, including that person, in his hand? What better could you do if you're the one in that moment of darkness and pain and suffering than reach out towards Jesus? Think in Mark chapter 2 of the friends who brought the paralyzed man and they, they bring him to Jesus and it's so packed around the house that there's no way in. So they climb up on top, rip the tile roof off and lower the man down right in front of him. What lengths do we go to to say, God, you're actually the source of life that we look to? Or do we look to everything else? We look to our health. We look to our families. We look to our jobs. We say, if one thing goes wrong with them, God, you may not be good. And I say, we have the wrong understanding of who God is because God is good all the time. In everything, every circumstance, good and bad, he is good. You see this again, Mark chapter 3, verse 10 says, he healed many. So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Luke 6, 19 says, And the whole crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Folks, listen to me. There is still power in Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Man, don't let the bad guy steal this, this thunder. Right? Because there's, there's so many morons I shouldn't say it. There's so many people who I would not recommend that you watch on TV, and they're the only ones who seem to have this message that Jesus Christ is still the sovereign Lord and the healer. And so when we hear it, we can kind of pull back from that. I say we need to lean into that. 
Thank God for medicine. Thank God for doctors. Thank God for families and jobs and all those other things. And yet it's Jesus Christ who is our, our source, our sustainer. And outside of that, we have nothing. He is our hope. And yet we better be careful that we don't make Jesus into our favorite version of him. I actually think that is the mistake of the people on TV. They make Jesus into this one-sided guy who heals everybody and accepts everybody. And if it doesn't work for you, well, the problem's with you, not with Jesus. I actually think it sounds weird to say the problem's with Jesus. Because this is the same Jesus in the Bible who went to that pool and healed the paralytic man. And there's all these others laying around the pool and he left them there. Are you guys listening to me? This is rough. This is not a, a, an easy truth. This is the same Jesus we read in Mark 1.38, who, as these people are literally banging at the door, and Jesus says, let's go to the next town, let's go to the next village, preaching the gospels why I came out. You go, oh, that's just a one-time event. Okay, remind me, why are the disciples and Jesus here? Because people were so clamoring for his healing and his attention that they couldn't even eat. Remember that? Beginning of Mark chapter 6. And so what does Jesus say again? The same thing he said every other time. Let's go. He keeps leaving people behind. This, this just, it, it amazes me. Jesus responds with such compassion to the crowds. And totally different to those who manipulate God's word for their own gain. Here's another difficult truth. Uh, this Jesus that we, we have sort of a, a weird painting of from Sunday school, he arrives, at, think with me on this, he arrives in Gennesaret, and there's all these people clamoring for his attention. He could have gone, oh, not again. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even correct them on their motivation. He doesn't make sure they understand everything clearly. He just loves them and heals them. And then look, look at your Bible here. We read right to the end of Mark 6. Look at the beginning of Mark 7. You're going to see the story of Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. We're not going to take time to read it. That's next week or two weeks from now at Patriot's Day. It's next week. But Mark 7, verses 6, 7, and 9 says this. He says this, think, <laughs> think with me here, to the Pharisees in public. We respond pretty poorly to people being corrected in public. <gasps> oh, that was rude. Jesus is going to publicly... Not only correct, he's going to lay into these Pharisees. He says, verse 6, these people honor me, not, not these crowds, these teachers of the crowds. Honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine, teaching as, as this is the word of God, the commands of men. Stuff they've made up, they're saying, this is the command of God. <laughs> and Jesus says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus deals one way with the misguided crowds and really different with those who are teaching those misguided crowds. Probably not a bad paradigm for us. John the Baptist, in case you think this is a one-off thing, John the Baptist does the exact same thing. Uh, John the Baptist is baptizing people for repentance. One of the things we say again and again is uh, the Christian life isn't about perfection, it's about repentance. 
You don't become a Christian and now you're perfect. You become a Christian and now I'm just so aware that I'm not perfect. So we should have this life that's marked with repentance. He's calling people, repent, turn to God. And these same guys, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes show up. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. John the Baptist says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be baptized, he says to them, you brood of vipers, you deadly, poisonous pack of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Dude, that's harsh. Come on. Think with me here. <laughs> you know what he just said? Who told you to go to church and be a Christian? It'd be better if you'd go to hell. That's r- don't, don't go around saying that, all right? <laughs> well, Pastor Matt, so we could. No, I, like, I'm just saying there, there's a very hard truth that's being said here. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you want to go through the outward step, this is really what he's saying. You want to go through this outward step of repentance and baptism, then you better bear fruit in keeping with repentance because right now that's not at all what you're doing. Because Jesus said these people look good on the outside, but their hearts are far from me. Yet here's, this is the real beauty of this story. Because there are hurting people, we discover a caring and healing Savior. Man, right in the midst of uh, all these Pharisees and uh, rabbis and scribes who were, were sort of pointing them in the wrong direction, here comes Jesus to this misguided crowd, and he just keeps loving on them. Church, I, I think there is a profound truth for us today in that. We have a, a responsibility to share the gospel. We have a responsibility to speak the truth, especially when the whole world around us is denying that truth exists. But we have another responsibility that almost sits on top of those, which is to love this world which Jesus loved. To have care and compassion for these people, even the misguided and misdirected ones, that Jesus had that same compassion for. And the church does a giant disservice to our Savior when we act badly to those in need. We act without compassion. We act forgetting that it is only by grace that we have been saved. That we, apart from the grace of God, stand condemned as sinners under the wrath of God. And yet in Christ, we have reached out and touched him and are healed. And others can be as well. Worship team, if you guys would come on up. As they're coming, I I want you to just think about something with me. We've just read these stories of Jesus doing these amazing miracles. And again, our our tendency is to paint them as, this is the amazing thing, this is what we're chasing, this is what we're after, this is what gets the headlines. And yet we miss the point that At the feeding of the 5,000, the problem Jesus was trying to correct was not food. Because Jesus began by teaching them. that The food was a, a means to an end. That the disciples' problem was not that they were stuck in the middle of a storm on the sea because Jesus put them in that storm. He put them on that sea. Their problem was they had not fully recognized who Jesus was. And we can look at a story like this, and I think it should, should have a couple reactions. It, it should lift our hearts to say, Jesus, you are still the Savior and healer of this world. And so just like we did this morning, when, when 
those that we love or even yourself are struggling and hurting, what do we do? We turn to him again and again and again and we cry out, Jesus, have mercy on them. Have mercy on me. Yet I think it's important to remind us as well that even, even in Jesus' ministry, we don't see everyone. There, there's people he walked away from. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, the, the apostles, uh, Paul writing this, says, Erastimus remained in Corinth, and I, Paul, left Trophimus, for he was ill at Miletus. It, we don't, you don't find in the scripture this universal healing where everybody gets healed. It, it just isn't there. Here's what we see. Jesus could have healed everybody, but he didn't. He healed some, and we don't get a full explanation of why this person and not that person. And the same thing is true for today. So here's what we do. We cry out to him with everything that we have. Jesus, have mercy. Yet we also ground ourselves in the fact that our salvation and our confidence isn't found in, oh man, church, get this. It's not found in Christ's ability to temporarily heal our bodies. Can he do that? Absolutely. He's the sovereign Lord of the creation. That's why we call out to him. But that's not where our hope and our confidence is found. Our hope is found in knowing that he is able to heal and cleanse and destroy the sin and its wages of death that comes with it and give us in its place eternal healing and eternal life. And sometimes we get to see that break in in the middle of our hurting and darkness on this earth. So every moment in between, we crawl to him as our only hope. We drag those that we love to him. and We say, put your hope in Christ. Our loved ones who are suffering with pain or illness, a child dealing with disappointment, those around us in a fallen world, we say, hope in Christ. That's our same call week after week as we respond to God's word by taking communion together. So we respond in, in singing back to God. We're saying, not only to those around us, we're saying to ourselves, put your hope in Christ. See, it's only his broken body in your place. It's only his blood shed in your place that gives you any chance at healing and salvation. Don't let, I, I'm, I would beg you, don't let this become a ritual where we just go through the motions of, of taking communion. Every, every week when we gather together, we should be reminded that this is why we are here, because Jesus died for us. And in his resurrection, we too have new life. Why don't you stand together with me? I want to invite you as we respond. We're going to take communion we're also going to be uh, singing in response to just allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. We have an open communion, and so if you are a believer who has put your faith and your hope and your trust in Christ alone for your salvation, outside of works, what the Reformers called grace alone, that we cannot earn, we cannot add to what God has done. Through faith alone, we invite you to come and join us at the table. We're, we're going to start at the front. Uh, take the elements. You can go back to your seats. We have wine on this side, grape juice on this side, as your conscience dictates. And then hold them. We'll, we'll take the elements together in just a moment.
but also as we invite you every week, that this really is the call to the redeemed walking in faithfulness. So if you're not a Christian, or, or if you are a believer, and yet you are aware that in your heart you have been willingly, actively, not only not putting to death the sin that is in your life and repenting of that, you've just sort of been living in it, making excuses for it, justifying it, even though you know in your heart that it's contrary to the word of God. We're going to invite you to not come this morning. But instead to search your heart and actually to allow God to bring conviction of sin and repentance, which is the greatest gift that God could give us because that's also followed by forgiveness and eternal life. So let's turn to the Lord this morning as we sing together.